Well, good morning. Welcome, New Year's resolutionists. Yeah, I'm with you. I've got one. It's to stop smoking cigars while I'm preaching. So, and if you don't know if I'm kidding, I don't know what to do with my hands this morning. So, uh, we're in John chapter 3. We're working our way through the book of John. You're going to find us finishing up John chapter 3. And uh, one of the things that as you look through the book of John, John likes to use stories as metaphor. They really happened, but he arranges them in a way to make a larger point. Uh, if you haven't been with us, you'll note that uh, when, when you watch Paul go, or excuse me, John go through these things, he builds through them in a certain way. So the first thing that we have is uh, an understanding of Jesus and uh, telling the story, John telling a story of water turning into wine. So water turns into wine, and when that happens, I don't know what's going on with the slides here, but water to wine. So when water turns to wine, we have uh, this picture of Jesus taking a part of Jewish religion, the, the ritual way they would wash themselves, and we have them then turning into wine and Jesus overturning this kind of way that Jews live and how they live religiously. And John builds story after story on it to show Jesus fulfilling Judaism. So you have the story of the water to wine, and then you have the story of Jesus cleansing the temple. Uh, and so you have the temple sacrificial system, Jesus overturning that system. You have the next story is Jesus interacting with a man named Nicodemus, who is a rabbi, uh, and Jesus kind of overturning this uh, rabbinical system. The rabbis were the teachers of Israel. So if you had the pillars of Judaism at the time that Jesus shows up, what you're going to have is the cultus which is the day, the way the Jews live their everyday lives, okay? So that's the water to wine, how they wash themselves at a wedding to make sure they are religiously clean. You have the rabbinical system, the teachers that taught them what the law meant and how it worked its way out. That's Nicodemus. You have the temple system, the sacrificial system. At the end of the story of Jesus cleansing the temple, he says, destroy this temple. I'll raise it in three days, meaning his body, that he's going to become the last sacrifice. So the last thing you need in order for John's purpose of showing how Jesus is the fulfillment of Judaism is you need someone who's a priest and someone who's a prophet. Okay? So the priests are the power of the Jewish religion. Uh, they hold all the power because they're the ones who make the sacrifices. And the prophets are the people who speak the words of God. So you need someone who is, or, or two people who are those things, who are going to speak and, and make Jesus sort of now the fulfillment of this Jewish religion. And that's exactly who we have in the man named John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist is a priest. If you know his story, his father is a priest who has a vision that he and his wife, who are both way too old to have children, are going to have a child, and that child is John the Baptist. If you know your Old Testament well, and you remember your felt board days back in the way, John is a great, 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 great grandson of Aaron, as in Moses and Aaron, because only Aaron's children could be priests. So John has this lineage of being this priest. He could have been high priest in a different way, 
But John is also a prophet. See, all through the Old Testament, none of the priests were also prophets. It's always Aaron and Moses. Uh, At the end of the book of Revelation, you're going to have Moses and Elijah, right? You're going to have these different couples used together. They're never the same guy, but here they are. That John is going to be a prophet and a priest who's going to now uh, anoint, if you will, Jesus. And that's beyond the baptism. That's why John is the one who baptizes Jesus Christ. He's a prophet and a priest. Now, in the book of John, John chapter 3, verse 22, is our text this morning. And this is the last bit of John, the Baptist, in the book of John, the apostle. Those are two different guys, if you don't know that. Uh, Other gospels have other stories about John the Baptist. We know a little bit more about his life from other places. But this is where John ends in, John the Baptist ends in the book of John. That's going to be very confusing eventually. So John said that John said that John, that John the John. There we go. But here's what happens in John chapter 3, verse 22. It says this, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem, because water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. And we know John's life is going to end when he is imprisoned and eventually beheaded. That doesn't occur in the book of John. John the Apostle doesn't add that. So here's what's going on. John the Baptist does his ministry around the Jordan River. And this particular text says specifically that he is at Anon near Salem. Now these words, Anon, just means fountain, fountain, and Salem is from peace. So literally what this says is the fountains of peace. He was baptizing at the fountains of peace. Now here's what's interesting for us. Is most of the time we hear about John, John is baptizing at a place called Bethbara, which we call Bethany beyond the Jordan. Now we don't know exactly where that is today. And if you've been to Israel and you've gone, I've been there, you might have been there, okay? We don't know exactly where it is. We have a good idea, and it probably is, but we're not sure. So here's a map of, of Israel and the Holy Lands, okay? And here's Jerusalem right here. And here's Bethany right here, Jordan River, the Sea of Galilee up here in the north. Jordan River flows down to the Dead Sea. Jerusalem here, Bethany here. So this is why it's called Bethany beyond the Jordan because everything finds its, uh, everything finds its geographical location from where it is to Jerusalem in that time. So this is why it's Bethany beyond the Jordan because the Jerusalem's here. So this is about where we think that John is baptizing. Now, if you go there today, here's the problem with the Jordan River is because it's such a part of the Bible, you know, sort of mythology of the Bible, not to mean the myths, but sort of the, the grand story of the Bible. We have this picture of it and we sing songs about it like, Oh, River Jordan. Like, and you get this, you know, you think you're going to see the Mississippi or something like that, right? Okay. This is the Jordan River at Bethany. It is, that's it. Okay. That's it. Now I know you're going, that can't be it. That is it. It is the Jordan could, we would call that a ditch in Texas, but you can't sing songs about the ditch of Jordan. Like there's no. Oh, creek of Jordan that's not very big at all. La, 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 la. Okay. So here's kind of another picture of it. Uh, there's a church there now because that's where we believe Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. Here's, here's the church that's on the site. Uh, 
you know, pretty ornate. And they have like built up the side where you can kind of go down into the Jordan ditch and be baptized. I'm sorry, river. If you've done that, I'm sure it was special and dirty. Uh, Okay, but I want you to remember the church. Remember the gold, the gold domed church, not Notre Dame, but here. And uh, I want to give you a further back picture of where this is so you get a grander scale idea of what we're talking about here. Because here's the same place, a picture taken from far away. All right? I mean, we're talking desert, death, nothing. And you can see just where the Jordan comes, the little bit of life it brings. See, here's, here's the church, and you get the idea. This is a place where this is the only fresh water there is really running through the place. Very arid, very desert. And why is that such a big deal? It's a big deal because uh, this can't be where we see Jesus and John interact in this passage. Now, we know that what they've said is that in the passage, it says that John is at Anon near Salem. Now, here's Bethbara, here's Bethany on the Jordan, and Anon is all the way up here. This is Anon. Okay? Now, notice all the green here. Right? Anon, the fountains of peace, all up here. And here's the distinction. It's hard to get pictures of this place now because it's not not very touristy. So, but you're going to get an idea of the distinctions of the place, much more lush, much more, much more, um, vegetation. This is a modern day picture. So you can obviously see kind of locks they built to capture the water. In fact, in Anon near Salem, there are seven natural springs in a quarter mile radius. So this is, this place is filled with water. You compare that to Bethany beyond the Jordan, uh, you, you can just get the picture of the distinction between these two places. Now, why is this important? It's important for a number of reasons. Number one, even today, even today, 90% of the human population lives within six miles of fresh water. Okay? 90% of the human population lives within six miles of fresh water. In a region where fresh water is scarce, that's even more so. So at a place where you have the Sea of Galilee, a freshwater lake, and a place called Anon near Salem, the Fountains of Peace. And I want you to take a look at this texting because I want to show it to you so you're clear at what I'm saying here. Uh, in Greek, this passage reads, Anon near Salem, because in the Greek phrase right here, literally says, for there were many waters there. That's what it says. There were many waters there. So in a, pl in a time where there's not a lot of water, there's obviously no modern conveniences of pumps, these kind of things. You might have had aqueducts if the Romans had been able to build them there. Uh, you're not going to have a lot of irrigation or anything like that. And there's a place where there's a lot of water. You're going to have a huge population. You're going to have a lot of people living there for the water. But there's another reason that I need to point this out to you, and it all boils down to Judaism. Okay? Under Judaism, as I've already kind of mentioned to you, one of the things a Jew had to do in order to be ritually clean before God was called an ablution. An ablution. It is a ritual bath. All right? Now, I won't say bath. Because you and I, when we hear that, we think hygiene. 
Okay, so that, that word doesn't help me here. But I also can't use the word baptism because it's loaded with Christian connotation. So I choose the word ablution because you probably missed it on your SAT test when you took it, okay? So Jews had to ritually wash themselves to stay ritually clean before God. Now, there's all kinds of rules by the time Jesus comes along about what kind of water you can use. In fact, by the time Jesus and Paul come along, there are six categories of water and you want to choose the best category you can if you can only use six the sixth level that's what you use but you want level one water to ablute yourself yes that's a word ablute yourself with in order to be ritually clean now there's all kinds of other rules about it like number one like if you hear wait a minute part of the religion is you have to take a lot of baths i'm down with that okay there's no candles there's no chamomile there's no lavender all right Rule number one, the water cannot be heated in any way. So you're like, and I'm out. Don't, and I'm out. Okay? Now, what I mean by that is not that it, it can be room temperature, and if it's heated by the sun, that's fine, but you can't build a fire under it. You can't artificially heat this water in any way. And the second rule, and much more problematic, is it cannot be drawn in any way. So you can't get a, a, a bucket and fill up your bathtub, and then do it. So it almost has to be rainwater, which is problematic, okay? Uh, if you know anything about Israel and you know about Jerusalem, Jerusalem is centered around the Temple Mount where the official temple of Judaism was, and uh, all kinds of archaeology going on in that place. And one of the things we found digging around the Temple Mount in Jerusalem are 70 baths or ablution spots, we should say, okay? Just that would catch rainwater so that people could just walk down into them, wash themselves uh, to be ritually clean before God, and then go into the temple because you can't go in the temple if you're ritually unclean. So there's 70 of these all around the temple. Now, why is all that important, and why do you even semi-pretend to care? All right. Number one, water category. And if you know your Bible, I'm about to... Pop your brain out of your ear just a little bit. So get ready to stick it back in. Number one category of water is called living water. It's the water you want. Guess what the very next story in the Bible is about? Jesus telling a woman, I'll give you living water. What is living water? Living water is water that naturally moves. So it's river, spring, something like that. This is why the Jordan River is such a big deal because the Israelites who are practicing Jews can go, Judaism, can go there, wash themselves in the moving Jordan River, and that is the best water to wash themselves in. So at a place called Anon Nimshalem with many waters, fountains, okay, spring water, this is a place where there's already a huge congregation of people. They're all going to these springs not only to get their daily water to live, but also because it's the best place for a Jew to go in order to purify themselves before God. Now, I know you're thinking to yourself, Pinkner, that's crazy. You, once again, you've read way much in, you've read too much into the passage. There's no way that's what this is about. You're going crazy. And that's why I tricked you and held this verse out. Because the next verse says this, verse 25. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over what? Purification. Because they are at the place where Jews went to be purified before God. 
This is where a Jew goes in order to say, all right, I've committed this sin or I've committed this unintentional thing or I've done this thing that just makes me unclean before God. So what I have to do now to be right with God is go and I have to do this, I have to wash myself, dip myself in this many times or, or however they were practicing at the time. John the Baptist comes in and says, no, that's not what you have to do to be right with God. You don't have to dip yourself in this water. John the Baptist shows up, and all the Gospels record that John the Baptist came preaching this message. And John appeared, Mark 1, 4 says, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of what? Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, baptism is just the word for ablution. It's the same exact thing. John shows up at the place where there are all kinds of Jews showing up to cleanse themselves ritually and goes, you're just washing dirt off your body. Nothing is off your soul. He says, you have to bathe yourself in repentance in order to be clean with God. So this debate sparks up between the Jews who are there doing their, in some ways, God-commanded things because God gave Israel the law. God told them, this makes you unclean, bathe yourself. They didn't make that up. They made up a lot of rules around that commandment. But don't kid yourself, Judaism is from God. And they're showing up and going, wait a minute, what's going on? And what John the Baptist is going to say to them is either going to get their attention or seal them in their disbelief. Because here's what happens. John's baptizing. He's telling people, you must be bathed in repentance. And in in Matthew chapter 4, it says that Jesus preached the same message. So Jesus is going around saying, you must be bathed in repentance. And what happens in this text, if you look at it, remember this. Uh, it says, Jesus and his disciples, they go to Anon near Salem and they baptize there. And so they're both in the same place baptizing, preaching the same message. So what do John's disciples think? John's disciples who've been with him for a while go, hey, you remember that dude who you baptized? He's stealing your stuff, man. Copyright infringement. What is up? So they come to John and they say to him, uh, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. They're going to John the Baptist and going, hey, uh, all our people are going to that Jesus guy. How do we feel about that? Because what's up? All right. Here's what John says to him. John 3, 27. And John answered, person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ. I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hear him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, I must decrease. And what you have here is a prophet and a priest of Judaism saying, my time is ending and his time is beginning 
and I'm so happy. I'm so happy. He starts off by saying, you can receive nothing, not even one thing, unless it is granted to you from heaven. And what he's saying to them is, to get what I am trying to tell you, it is God who must reveal it to you. God is going to have to explain this to you. But what I want you to hear is that he is the one you should be following. He is the one you should be listening to. It's not me anymore. My time is done. He is saying, it is now time to follow this Christ. And in the next verse, he says, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. John the Baptist uh, talks about Jesus' divinity. He who comes from heaven. He's saying, I am just the earth. He's saying what Jesus is trying to teach us is so far above everything we know about God. It's the difference between heaven and earth. And there's a big difference between those two things. See, we understand a religion that comes to us and says, be good, be better than you are, quit being bad, start being better. When you mess up, do these things and fix it. And if you do that enough, God will forgive you. That makes sense. What doesn't make sense to us is from somebody from heaven show up and say, you have no hope of saving yourself. None. Your best works are terrible. And you must turn your back on them and trust me to save you. You see the dis- distinction? I can understand being in a shipwreck and seeing land and somebody going, swim to land or you die. That makes sense to me. But if I'm in a shipwreck and I think I see land and I think I can swim there, but somebody who's on a boat who's got binoculars going, what you're seeing's not real. You have to come to me. I have to save you. If you try to swim it to shore, you're not going to make it. And that's a whole different question. Then it's me having to, to, to put aside what I think I see, what I think I can do, and surrender myself to someone who my instincts tell me is my enemy. So this is what Jesus, what John is saying. What he is going to say is going to make you think he's your enemy when really he is your only shot. He says, no one receives his testimony. See, when Jesus shows up in Judaism and says to this temple, this temple can't save you. What Israel should have gone is gone. You're right. How could an animal's death save me from my sin? There has to be something else. But sin made them say, no, kill that man. And the same thing's true today. What Christianity is saying to you is not be better. And that's what most people think it's saying. What Christianity is saying to you is he's your only chance and you have no other. If you want proof that this is what John is trying to get across, this is what he says. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God For he gives the spirit without measure. 
Now let me break this verse down for you because it's a little confusing. The first thing it's saying here is whoever receives his testimony, remember the last verse ended by saying no one believes him, but the person who does believe him is setting his seal on this promise that God is true. In other words, what it's saying is God has come forward in the form of Jesus and said, I will save you from your sin if you will put your faith in me and trust me to save you. If you will repent of your sins and turn from them, not in your own power, but because you call me Lord, I will save you. And you and I, Christian, are betting everything on that promise. We're setting our seal that God is true, that he's not lying to us. That's what that verse is saying. You are betting everything that what God says is what God does. That what he has promised is what he will do. You are giving up the hope of saving yourself and trusting Jesus to save you. And let me tell you something. This sinner now knows that's my only hope. Because God's laws in me have done what they were supposed to do. God's laws were supposed to crush any hope you have in yourself to save you. Quick Ten Commandment test. How many of you in this room have ever told a lie? Raise your hand. Okay, if your hand's not up, you're lying now. Welcome to the club. Congratulations. Welcome. Right? How many of you have ever stolen anything? Raise your hand. Okay, everybody check your stuff around those people. How many of you have a brother or sister? You've stolen something. First thing is, I already know you're a liar, so how should I trust you about stealing? How many of you have ever done work on a Saturday? Okay, you broke the Sabbath. You're like, uh-uh, that's Sunday. No, that's Saturday. You don't even know when it is. Right? Now, I can go on and on and on. How many of you ever committed a murder? Right? Some are like, Because uh. somebody's going to raise their hand and going to go, I've got to go to the bathroom. <laughs> All right? Of course, most people is like, well, no, I haven't done that, so I'm good, right? But Jesus comes along and says, if you've ever even said a word in anger, you've committed murder in your heart. So how many of you have ever driven on the interstate? <laughs> yep. On and on and on and on and on. The Ten Commandments show us how sinful we are. See, the person in here who's in big trouble is not the person who says, I am overwhelmed by my sins. I have sinned so much. Jesus, if you don't save me, I, how could I possibly ever hope to go to heaven? That person's fine. The person who goes, I'm not that bad, isn't hearing what the Bible's saying. They're not listening. It says that God, this, this verse is confusing in the ESV. I meant to put it up in NIV, but I didn't. Uh, it says, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. Now, what this is saying is the he here is Jesus. Okay, it's God. The NIV does a little bit better job of pulling this out. What this is not saying, for those of you who are a little bit further along in your Christian walk, is that God gives us the spirit without measure. That's blasphemy. That would make us God. What it's saying is Judaism gave the spirit in measures. It gave the counsel of God in measures. But what Christ has done is give the whole thing. This is all of God's saving plan. 
That's what he's saying. He's saying, trust God because this message that Jesus have is the full measure of what God is doing. That's what it's saying. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Because we have sinned, and I, and I made it funny, and that's fine. You know, I, I don't want to treat it cavalierly, but one sin is enough for God to have to condemn us. Because God is perfect, he cannot allow even one intentional sin. So take out all your mistakes. Take out all the times you, uh, you, you, you would have done it differently. Take out just the, the time, just, just the times that you knew what was wrong and you did it anyway. God must convict you or he's not perfect. Not to mention that each one of us has sinned hundreds of billions of times in our life. The wrath of God must come down on that person or he's not God. But in Christ, we have eternal life. In the son, we have eternal life. And here's what I love. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Later in the book of John, Jesus will say, he is in charge of judgment day. So when we go to judgment day, the person on the judge's seat is Jesus. So you have two options here. Option one is on the day of judgment day, the dude who said, trust me and I'll save you, and then died for your sins, and then was resurrected for your sins, is in charge of judgment. So you're going to walk up on judgment day and go, he's going to say, why should I forgive your sins? And go, well, I was trusting you that you said you took care of that. Is he then going to go, nah, that didn't count, out. He's going to go, of course I did. I'm in charge. I did the work. I did the stuff. And now I get to make the call. You're good. Let's go. But for the person who didn't trust Christ, who trusts in their own goodness, who trusts in their own ability to mitigate their own sins, when they show up and Jesus said, I offered to save you, and you told me I wasn't good enough to save you. How is that judgment going to go down? When the guy who offered to save you is in charge of your judgment, and you show up saying, I didn't need you. Do you need me now? Judaism was established by God, as Paul says in Galatians, to teach us one lesson and teach it ruthlessly and without fail. And that one lesson is you need a savior. Christianity comes in as the fulfillment of Judaism, not the replacement, the fulfillment of Judaism and says, here is your savior. It's why the last prophet priest, when he sees Jesus, hearkens back all the ways that Judaism approached God and said, there's the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. Amen? You stand and pray with me. As we close our time together, if all you know of religion is be better, you've never, ever heard Christianity. If you've gone to a Christian church your whole life, 
any denomination. And what you left that place with was be better, do good. Uh, you don't understand the message. The Bible talks about God saving us as a gift of grace. And we would love to talk with you about it. If you need prayers, we close. Some of our elders and their spouses will be in the front to receive you. If you need prayer for anything, this new year, a health concern, something going on in your family, anything, we'd love to pray with you. But especially if you need to understand what I mean when I say saved by grace, by the Savior Jesus Christ, please come speak to one of our elders. They'd love to. Let's pray together as a congregation, and then we will try to get out of here alive. All right? Our Father in God, we praise you for the Savior, Jesus Christ, our hope and our salvation. Jesus, as we come to you, we thank you for the cross. As we exit the Christmas season, we now turn toward the Easter one, reminder of the birth of our Savior and then the reason he came, whose blood on a cross is my only hope of salvation. It is my holiness and righteousness. The good works I do now, I do in obedience to a new life you've promised me, not to earn that life. God, I praise you that you've saved a sinner like me, a wretch like me, as the song says. Praise you, Jesus. We proclaim you, Lord, God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, the Savior, our hope, our Savior, King. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.